Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Good morning. I'm impressed. Saturday morning, you're up out of bed and here. Um, so you're either very desperate or very keen. I'm not sure which. So it's great. And I'm continually impressed by the uh, creativity and work of the Bangor Worldwide Mission Convention. There is no other event like this anywhere in Europe, a week each year focused just on mission. This is unique as as an event, and it's fantastic. Um, I live quite locally, I live in Groomsport, so I hadn't as big a journey as some others to get here. Um, And... We're going to talk today about what it means to be a supporting community to a missionary. My own background in this is that Phyllis, my wife, and I have been supporting missionaries since all our married life and our 40th wedding anniversary is coming up soon. We have also lived on a support basis ourselves for almost 39 years. And for about 20 years, I've helped missionaries get to grips with the biblical and practical realities of living by the gifts of God's people. Living as a missionary is a very strange mechanism, very strange process. In most jobs, when you get a job, your, your first instinct is, well, how much can I get? What, you know, what's the highest salary I can get out of this? When you raise the support yourself, your first instinct is, what's the least I can live on? And there can be a kind of a mad dash to the bottom and a sort of minimalist mentality. So, For the last 20 years, our our work has been helping missionaries, mostly in the emerging world of mission, people coming from countries that historically have received missionaries, helping them understand the the, the principles of living on a support basis. So what we're going to look at today is what it actually means to support a missionary. We've called this a workshop. At least that's what it's billed as. So I'm going to try and make you work if I can. So you'll notice that there's actually lines there. You're supposed to fill things in on these lines. And we'll see how it goes, whether we kind of break halfway through and say, okay, round your tables, five minutes discussing some of this stuff or whether we'll do it at the end or whatever. We'll just see what it feels like. So that's the work bit. In terms of shop, I want to sell you a book. Um, A couple of years ago, or a few years ago, I had a number of people say, could you put your thoughts into paper? So... This is a handbook for people raising support. Let me read what George Verwer says about this. Would you like to help someone who's raising support? Start by giving them a copy of this book. So if you would like one, there's a bunch at the back there, and they're at a price you cannot get anywhere else. I have to buy my own books. That's the problem when you actually write a book. You end up buying your books. But certainly, if you buy quantities, I'm passing them on to you at exactly the same price I buy them for. So please, if you have missionaries, if you have a missionary, you think... I'd like to get them something. Don't leave without one, or George Verrill will come and get you. Um, So we're going to look at what does it mean to support a missionary. And we're going to particularly look at Paul and his supporters in Philippi. Because unless we ground all that we do in this area in scriptures, then where else are we going to, 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 to find the answers? The one thing that you find when you look at Paul's relationship with his supporting church in Philippi, is it takes a lot more than money. Money is one aspect 
of a support relationship between a supporter and a missionary, but it is not at all the primary aspect. In Matthew 28, you know, somebody tell me the words in Matthew 28 that we all focus on in mission. Go. Go. Thank you. Go into all the world. That's kind of, that's what this whole week's about. Go into mission. But when Paul writes to to the church in Rome, he says, but how will they preach unless they are sent? The going only works if the senders do their job properly. The father of modern mission, William Carey, um, when he went to India first, he said to his friends, I'm going down the mine shaft of hell to rescue lost souls. You men at the top, you have to hold the ropes very tightly. He understood that this was a partnership relationship. And unfortunately, over the last 200 years, we've lost a lot of that. We've lost that sense of this is a true partnership. And it's easy just to, to, to fill out the standing order, give the 30 pounds a month, but actually not even remember you're giving it because your bank does it every month and you forget. So we want to actually look at a much deeper relationship today. Paul, as you know, was born in Tarsus. Tarsus, it's over there where the, just where the T of Tarsus is. And it's actually quite close to Aleppo in Syria that we see on the news these days. So he, remember, Paul was Turkish. And that's where he grew up, just right on, on the Turkish-Syrian border. If he was there today, he'd be flooded with refugees. So that was his background. Then his uh, dramatic conversion after his, his training uh, as a Pharisee, his first missionary journey, then a second missionary journey. In that journey, he was in Lydia, and then Iconia, which is today called Konya, just above that. He then wanted to go to northern Turkey, just north of Ankara. But uh, the Spirit of God stepped in and said, no, don't want you to go there. Okay, well, where should I go? And he was quite confused, didn't know where he was to go, so he went to Troas and kind of waited. And he had a dream. Dream said, come over to Europe, come over to, to Macedonia and help us. Up to this point, the Christian message was a Middle Eastern message. This is the first point it stepped over into a European setting. So Paul went to Philippi, which is where the, the A is there, and he was there quite a short time. Um, Lydia was the first Christian in Philippi, the f- first Christian in Europe, although she herself was from Turkey, and she'd kind of gone to, to, to Philippi in, in her business uh, world. But she was the first Christian. And then remember, there was the girl that became a Christian who was a a demonically influenced fortune teller. She stopped doing her fortune telling. Uh, The people that made money out of her were annoyed at that. They complained. Paul and Silas put in prison. Earthquake, prison governor. Next day, Paul's out of town. In fact, I love that bit because (laughs) the officials come to Paul and say, okay, you need to leave town. He said, no, you men put me in prison. So you men are going to escort me out of time. I love that confidence. He said, but first, before you do that, he's talking to his captors. No, 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 no I'm not going to leave with you now and go down to Lydia's house because I want to just see the Christians there before I go. So he sets the agenda for the captors. It's fantastic confidence. And then they march him out of town and I can just imagine them being so pleased to get rid of this troublemaker. And he goes to Thessalonica. Thessalonica, if you, go, if you do Google Maps and put directions, Philippi to Thessalonica, walking, it's, in today's world, 31 hours. So that's a couple of days good walking. It was in Thessalonica that the church in Philippi really got to know Paul because they didn't really know him in Philippi because he left so soon. But when, when writing to them, he says, 
even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. So there were people who went back and forward, walking these 31 hours there, bringing gifts to Paul, walking 31 hours back, then telling the church in Philippi how it was going, coming back again and back. I mean, tell you, we have it easy today. We just sign standing orders. But those days, you had to walk the 31 hours to physically bring your gift. Run forward 10 or 12 years. Paul is now in house arrest in Rome. He wasn't teaching, wasn't preaching. He was basically very limited in what he was doing. But at least the church in Philippi knew where he was because he was all over the place usually. It was hard. I mean, you couldn't Skype him and say, where are you today? You know. So now they could send him another gift. They could actually send a gift to Rome. And they did. But if you put in Philippi and Rome walking, assuming you could get that boat across the river, across the sea there, 220 hours. 10 hours a day walking, six days a week. That's, you know, that's nearly a month to get the gift from Philippi to Paul. That was a huge step for them. And Epaphroditus, who brought the gift, he had to actually walk all the way back again. So I, sometimes we, we kind of miss the impact of this. Epaphroditus almost died in this process of getting the gift to him. So you can imagine Paul's excitement that they have gone to all this trouble to bring a gift to him. So he writes to them a thank you letter, which we call the Book of Philippians. It's actually the first thank you letter from a missionary to a supporting community. And it was written as a thank you letter. So, if we start looking at it on that basis, we get to see what Paul appreciates about this. So, he's writing his thank you letter from Rome, and he tells them in the letter, if you look carefully, what he appreciates about this relationship. So, if the Apostle Paul thought these were key things in a relationship with supporters, and this is what he needed, I guess we should think about similar patterns ourselves. So what I want to look at are five things that Paul said he appreciated about the supporting church in Philippi, and two things where he said they benefited from the process, okay? Now, I know that we don't live in either Turkey or Greece, and I know that we're 21st century, not 1st century, but what I want you to think as we look at these relationships Paul had is, how does it work for us? Are we doing a good enough job here? Are our missionaries doing a good enough job? I've been a missionary for nearly 40 years, and we as a community are dreadful at communicating. I mean, I'll just say that. Dear friends letters every three months, and we think that's partnership. It isn't. So, uh, and, and even in this room, there's a big mixture in this room. In this room, there are some people who are missionaries themselves at the beginning of raising their own support. There are some people here who are heads of mission organizations in this country. There are some people here who have been missionaries for a lot of years and just heard there was free coffee showing up. There are people who, hi Philip, um, <laughs> there, there are people here who are representing their churches in mission communities, so I, I recognize there's a broad spectrum here. So each of us in the room will be bringing something different out of today, and that's fine, because we're looking at this with slightly different eyes. The first thing he said he appreciated about them was their partnership. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He knew that they were a vital part of the process, not just interested spectators. 
tell me some circumstances in life, leaving mission aside, just normal life, where we have partners or partnerships. Talk to me. Marriage, business, team sports, ballroom dancing, batant, whatever it is. My wife loves Strictly, I don't. Um, in those sorts of settings, business, marriage, team sports, etc., everyone knows that they have a role to play that if they opt out and don't play that role properly, the partnership collapses. You know, the, the Premier season started, and if the goalkeeper, the Chelsea goalkeeper halfway through the match thought, ah, couldn't be bothered doing this, I'm going to just play outfield, and he doesn't play his role anymore, then someone will get annoyed. Another 10 people on the pitch will get annoyed, to say nothing of the manager who will get extremely annoyed. In marriage, similarly, you know, if a pattern is developed and eventually the wife or husband think, I'm just going to do it entirely differently without reference to the other partner, it doesn't work. So a concept of partnership means a joining together of different skills, different um, abilities, different perspectives to make one thing work. And this is what he said about the people in Philippi. You are my partners in the gospel. In mission community, we throw the word partnership around like confetti, but we often don't really mean it. So whatever perspective you're coming from, the going or the sending community, my question is, how does this work? How, are we, how can we encourage supporters and missionaries to work better on a partnership basis? Now, partnership is, is like an overarching term for all the things that Paul talks about later, but it's the critical one. It's the one that says those, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking here particularly as a missionary myself who lives on a support basis. Those who support us, if I don't genuinely treat them as partners, then I'm doing them a disservice. I, I'm, I'm, I'm treating them as a source of money, as a cash cow, and that's really a disservice. Similarly, for those that support us, if they simply think, well, I've signed the standing order, that's all I need to do, then they're doing me a disservice because I need partners, not just people who give money. It takes time. One thing you'll find in any of those other aspects of partnership we talked about, marriage, business, team sports, etc., it takes time. It takes um, discussion. What are you trying to do? You know, Phyllis and I are married nearly 40 years, and there's still things I'm learning, you know, and because because we're just still exploring each other's lives and perspectives and thinking, about, and that, that takes hard work. Our marriage is probably stronger than it's ever been, but it's hard work still. So, as a sending community, work hard at this with your missionaries. They may not help you a lot, but you need to work hard at this as hard as you can. Secondly, if I can tell you what, I'm going to run through everything, and then at the end, we'll maybe take 10, 15 minutes around the table just to chat about this. Is that okay? Is that going to work all right? So, so take notes as you go and then discuss this at the end. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Their prayers made a difference. I do not understand how the prayers of fallen man, redeemed fallen man, move the hand of sovereign God. And I've given up trying to work that out. There may be theological brains in this room that can tell, tell me that, but I doubt it. I, I don't understand that. Throughout Scripture, we find it seems like God changes His mind 
following the intercessions from, from his people. Um, but the prayers do make a difference. Your prayers for your missionaries are vital. As a, as a supporter, if you're, if you're supporting someone as a church or as an individual, please do not tell them you will pray for them unless you will. It is extremely dangerous for a missionary to go out thinking they are prayed for and then find that they're not because that spiritual protection is vital. And we got a, an email just last night of a critical situation from a couple that, that we would be supportive of. And I emailed straight back and said, our prayers are with you, and I gave a very specific prayer. And I thought, I actually have to pray that prayer right now. Phyllis and I have to pray that now. And we prayed it again at breakfast this morning, etc. Because it doesn't help them for me just to email to say, well, we'll pray for you, and then not do it. Because the prayers make a difference. But the lack of prayers also make a difference. I don't know how you can get more people to come to your missionary prayer time in our church. I'm, I'm a member of <coughs> King's Fellowship in Bangor. We have a missionary prayer time every month, which Leslie Stewart here organizes. We have Leslie. Leslie is also the secretary of the convention, so she does a great job. So she holds the whole thing together. It's like pulling teeth to get people up an hour earlier on the second Sunday of the month to come to a missionary prayer time. And we have 12 couples out of our church in mission work. And, I, you know, I, it frustrates me. Why can we not get them there? I don't like getting up an hour, an hour earlier on a Sunday, but I know the importance of meeting with others to pray. Try to think creatively how are you going to do this, particularly how are you going to get a 20-something to pray consistently for missionaries. If you have to throw pizza in it, that's fine. If you have to, whatever it takes, we need to be much more creative in how we get the praying community to pray. So their prayers made the difference. How can you encourage more effective prayer for missionaries? That's just a question. I can't answer these questions. I'm just throwing up some issues here. Um, maybe as you discuss this later on, if there's ideas you've had that you've seen work that particularly involve a younger generation. Because the difficulty with the Gray Hair Brigade is that they die. And I do not at this point see the 20-somethings easily taking their place in prayer. Yes, in financial support, but not in prayer, uh, at least consistently. Um, on a personal basis, Phyllis and I, when I turned 50, which is now over 10 years ago, I realized most of my supporters are my age. Therefore, when I'm 70, I'm in trouble. So we started actually deliberately uh, raising support from a younger generation. We just talked to a young couple in their 20s this week who started to support us. And it's interesting that at that very relational level, they pray and they text me to tell me they pray. We have a young guy who's 25. He doesn't even earn enough yet to pay tax. Yet, he supports us every month, and we're in touch with him at least once or twice a month, and he's emailing and texting every month about things he prays for us. But I tell you, it is hard work as a missionary to do that. If I just sent him a dear friend's letter every three months, I would just, you know, nothing would happen. So how from both sides, from those that are the, the, the goers and the senders, how can we have more effective prayer? Uh, I actually was thinking of sometimes when people pray, they don't even believe it. Remember Peter in prison? Lord, please get that missionary friend of ours out of prison. And then he shows up at the door. Can I get in? No, I'm sorry, we're too busy praying for, to get you out of prison. Lord, no, no. We need to pray with expectancy. Even that early church kind of hadn't quite got that worked out. So that through buying 
through, through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is interesting because immediately prior to this in the passage, he has a discussion with them about whether or not he should die. He says to them, I don't know, should I die or not? If I die, I get to see Jesus. If I stay alive again, longer, I get to see you again. I don't know. And because there was no Skype or email, etc., he had to answer the question as he asked it. So it was a monologue trying to be a dialogue. Because he was an old man by this point, you know, and tired and limited in what he could do. But he goes on to say, no, I would actually like to stay alive longer so that when I get to you again, your joy will overflow on account of me. Paul had, with his supporting community in Philippi, something that is to be treasured, an emotional connection with his supporters. It doesn't happen very much. And I can understand why. If you have a, motion, a missionary in some far-off land, unless you've actually been there and seen it and smelt it and touched it and seen the people and talked to their friends, it's very hard to connect emotionally. But what happens then is the, the, the missionary comes back on furlough or home assignment or whatever it's called in your context, and the supporters don't know what questions to ask. And once you get over, they will hire things, and, uh, yeah, yeah, good. and then they're on to talking about Coronation Street. And it is so frustrating as a missionary. If you are a sending community, if there's one thing to do, connect emotionally. There's someone in this room, and I've asked his permission to tell the story, and I will. It's John sitting back there. Um, John and his wife supported us for many, many, many years. And wherever I am in the world, he phones me. Always has. I remember we were living in the U.S. for a couple of years, and I was, the phone rang while I was watching the Masters in Augusta. So I, I, I put the mute on the television and started talking to John. He phoned up. And these were the days when phone calls were not cheap. And in the middle of it, he said, oh, that was a good shot. He was watching exactly the same thing back at home. <laughs> but he knew I would be. See, we've known each other well, and he connects with me emotionally, and it's so important. And i tell you why particularly it's important. He's here today from Loch Gaul. Why? Because I'm here. But John's wife died a month ago. She was a dear friend of my wife. Yet in the midst of his own emotional struggle, he chose to come here today to support me. That's what I mean by emotionally connecting with, with missionaries. If he's the only one who'd come here today, I'd have been delighted. Work at this. Work at a way where even at a cost to yourself, and I did ask John's permission to say this, at, even if it's at a cost to yourself that you connect emotionally with the supporter, because it is very lonely out there. It's tough. You know, you're sitting in a situation. I know, for example, some of this room are involved in cross-cultural marriages. That's not easy. So get beyond the Coronation Street discussion and actually try to work out how can we really, really help you. Missionaries are so good at covering over with platitudes. Oh, we're doing very well in the Lord. Well, what on earth does that mean? You know, missionaries speak a language nobody else speaks or understands. We need, we need somehow to get to that point where we're saying, tell me what's happening in your life. We had a, a couple, when we, we lived in Germany for four years, and we had lived in Dublin prior to that for a while. And we had a good friend in Dublin who knew that we liked the Irish Times. And this was before internet days, pre-internet days. And I liked 
Mondays because all the sports results were in it and Phyllis likes Saturdays because all the weekend stuff. And we had a friend in Dublin every Monday morning wrapped up Saturdays and Mondays Irish Times and posted them to us. We got them towards the end of that week and we spent the whole weekend reading it a week late. But with no internet, it was the best we could get. That's an emotional connection. That's somebody who knows what are we missing and building into us that way. And I mean, a great, great couple. And they're still emotionally connected to us, even though they're now in their late 70s. So however you do this, how can you help missionary supporters connect emotionally? Next, he says, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Now, in one sense, they had no option. If they wanted to get a gift to Paul, they had to send somebody whether he walked or took a donkey or whatever, but they had to send somebody who took almost a month to get there. They couldn't do a bank transfer. They couldn't just email him. But they did send somebody. Someone to visit, help, and encourage. Any missionary I know, if offered the option, would you like an extra financial gift from us as a supporting church, or would you like us to spend that money sending somebody representing a church out to see you? They will all take the visit. Some of them are smart enough to know that when the, mis- when the messenger comes back again, they'll get more money anyhow. But it's just that importance of being there. I was talking, I've, sorry, I've forgotten your first name. Andrew, Andrew uh, is from a church in Lisbon. They have two missionaries in China. He went out to see them, came back. And it's just a whole different perspective than how he communicates back. Imagine in Philippi when Epaphroditus came back with this letter. Imagine the buzz that Sunday morning when that letter was read out. And Epaphroditus said, yeah, but let me tell you how he's really feeling. You know, and he's, he's stuck there. And I met such and such a person when they came to visit him, and they took a huge risk because they had to walk past the guards to come and see them. So they're now identified as a Christian in Rome. And all that stuff that's the subplot stuff that's never in the prayer letters, never even in the handwritten letters, the emails sometimes, the, the guy who goes and sees it will be able to see that. Philip and Deborah were in, in Nepal for some years. So we, had, I, we happened to have some work in Kathmandu, and we got to stay with them for a week. It was just different. Suddenly I understood. I understood what it meant when there's a strike and you can do nothing, nothing, you know, except walk and everybody's out walking, all those sorts of things. So it it is worth investing in somebody going there. Some of the folk who are taking gap years in your church, have them go and visit one of your missionaries, two or three months. We had a young guy in our church who went, I think it was to three or four of our missionaries over a year's period, a couple of months here, a couple of months there. Fantastic. Get people to take their holidays and go and spend time with some of the missionaries. Do anything you can to get that face-to-face relationship because it's worth it. And those of you that are in the mission community, encourage that. Um, It just makes such a difference. That um, guy who sent us the Irish Times, his commitment to us was that he would visit us any house we lived in anywhere in the world. And he has done that. Amazing. But just means I get, I get up in the morning knowing there's a guy so committed to me, he'll, he'll show up anywhere in the world. And um, it's just fantastic to have that person who comes and sits and talks and follows you around. If you've had experiences in that, share those around your tables when we get to that. Your concern. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, 
you have been concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. This is how he defines the material support, the financial support. He calls it concern. Interesting. They gave more than he needed, but he didn't send it back, interestingly. And it wasn't based on his performance. He wasn't teaching or preaching anymore. This was a gift given out of concern for the individual, not given to help him reach a budget. They just loved the man. And interestingly, they gave him more money when he least needed it. Because what could he do with it? He was under house arrest. He wasn't even preaching or teaching in a wide way. How can you help missionaries and supporters communicate more openly about the financial well-being of the missionary? The word performance should not be there. Sorry about that typo on my part. Um, I was talking to a missionary couple some time ago, and I said, how are things doing financially? Oh, the Lord provides. And I, I decided I would take a step with them. They, they, they were quite a pious couple. So I said, how's he doing? So what? I said, how's the Lord doing? What do you mean? I said, did you have a holiday this year? Um, no, no, no. How's your car doing? Because I knew the car was broken down. And there were four or five things I knew about them financially just weren't working out right. I said, the Lord's doing a bad job here then. You're telling me the Lord's providing, but these things aren't working. Missionaries, again, bring these platitudes that you as the sending community need to get underneath. What's it really like? I was talking to a guy yesterday, just a non-Christian guy, who said, what exactly do you do? It's one of our neighbors. I said, well, funny you should ask, sit down. Um, so he said, how does the pension thing work for missionaries? I said, in most cases, very badly. You know, most missionaries of my generation have not made adequate provision for their future. We haven't, because we didn't think about it when it was the 20s and 30s. Late 40s, we began thinking about it, and then it was too late. So talk it through with people. Uh, a young guy that I heard of who became a Christian from a completely secular background started going to a church, and it was a mission-minded church. He thought, oh, I should support somebody. So he said to one of the girls in the church, a bit older than him, sort of early 30s, who was going into mission work, so how does your system work? She said, oh, the Lord provides. He said, oh, good, I'll find somebody else then that the Lord isn't providing for. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what do the words we use mean? And, and for those of you that are missionaries here, please be open about it. Say, well, I'll tell you what it's like. Right now, it's in such and such a situation. We really need help. Because if it's all very vague and very woolly, then it's hard for the givers to know what I'm supposed to do. Our main supporting church when we started out, um, they supported a number of missionaries. One of the missionary couples would never tell them what their financial needs were, and the mission refused to do that. So then the mission committee never knew how much they needed. So other people who, where the needs were at least made clear, they got some extra money, but this couple didn't. They eventually left the money in serious financial debt, and they are now divorced. Paul said to Timothy, unless you take care of the needs of your immediate family, you have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Right now, he denies the faith and is worse than an unbeliever because he says, I stepped out in faith and God was not there. All because he did not take his responsibilities to his family seriously enough. And in spite of the best efforts of the church in that situation, the missionary was the blockage. He simply refused to engage. Don't let your missionaries do that. Sit them down over a cup of coffee, not in the committee room, over a cup of coffee and say, okay, have you had a holiday this year? 
And if they say, oh yes, well, do you mean two wet days in Bundoran or did you really have a holiday this year? Okay, right, and, and, and push them on some of these things. They will feel uncomfortable, but somehow we need to move away from a minimalist mindset of mission. The work of God's kingdom is far too important to think, what's the least we can do with that? And we somehow need to help the givers and the receivers to communicate better. Sometimes the receiver, the, the givers are the problem. I was with a church a while ago that I, I know, and they, <laughs> there was a, a representative of a mission speaking, someone not in this room. And as he was driving away afterwards, the mission, tre- the, the church treasurer, again, that guy that I knew, I was chatting to him, and he said, look at the car he's driving. And I thought he meant it positively. I said, yes, great, lovely. He said, but that's, I mean, that's a very expensive car. I said, it's the same car you have. <laughs> well, he said, but that's different. I said, you're right, it's different. You just use your car to go in and out to Belfast every day to work. He's driving all over the country. Why are you driving your car? But there's this daft thinking. Somehow, we need honesty in this process. And Paul was willing to be very honest with them and talking about his situation. So please, encourage that. Will it be difficult? Of course it will. But somehow, we need to get this on the surface and talked about more easily. Finally, two ways that they benefit. Remember, he had received more from them than he needed. But he goes on to say, not that I am looking for a gift. He says, you know, amply supplied, now I'd have received the, the, the gifts that Epaphroditus had bought. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Now, for those of you that are on the receiving end as missionaries here, I want you particularly to think about this. You see, this reverses the normal rules of accounting. It's the giver's account that gets credited. See, if I give you £100 towards a missionary in your church, or to you as a missionary, the Ulster Bank up the road there tells me my account has been debited by £100. But there's another account somewhere that says, I've been credited £100. And that's up in heaven where the books are turned upside down. It's a reverse thing, backwards. And Paul understood this. You see, he did not rejoice in his receiving. He rejoiced in their giving. I wish missionaries understood this. He was not saying, oh, that's great. I am now able to meet my needs. He said, this is great. Your account's just gone up. Thank you. That's why he didn't give it back when he had more than he needed. Because if he'd said to Epaphroditus, well, thanks a lot, actually there's far, far more than I need here. Could you bring half of that back to Philippi? Then their account would have got debited by half of the amount. We need, as givers, to understand this, that those who give are creating an eternal investment. The supporter is creating eternal investment. Matthew 6 is very clear about this. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, but store up, what are the next two words? For yourselves. That sounds selfish. Why not for the king? Because I am a prince in the kingdom. We are princes and princesses in the kingdom. And Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And one of the ways to do that is to be as supportive as you can of your mission community and help your missionaries, those of you who represent missions, help them understand 
that the primary beneficiary when someone gives a gift is the giver, not the receiver. I wish we could really understand this like Paul understood it. Lastly, my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. The promise of needs being met is for the supporter, not the missionary. Missionaries cannot claim that verse. But it is often applied to missionaries. I've even seen it in missionary brochures, you know, these sorts of things, with the needs of the missionary, with my God will supply all your needs above it. Wrong place. And I, I really don't think we understand this enough. Paul, having received the gift, turns around to the givers and said, thank you for giving. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I was speaking at a commissioning service of a missionary couple a few years ago, and I actually made this particular point. And then during the prayer of commissioning, the pastor of the church prayed, Lord, as we know from your word that you will meet the needs of this young couple. And I felt like saying, stop the prayer. Let's go back to what we just said 10 minutes ago. No, it is our needs as the sending community that are met. We, need to, we, we have to get this into our heads, both as givers and receivers. It took me some years to get to this point, and it, it, but I could say we genuinely are more excited today about the fact that our supporters give to us than we receive, because I see what happens in their lives. Um, there's a, a young couple, young married couple, that we know a little bit, and I, I just married recently, and I said to them a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, so how's, how's married life working? Oh, it's great. So have you decided which missionary you're going to support yet? As though it kind of everybody does. You know, they said, uh, no, I haven't quite got around to that yet. I say, you can support us if you'd like. Oh, can we do that? Yeah, that'd be cool. So we went and had a meal with them during the week, and what is interesting, hearing them talk, even already, about what that's prompting them to think. The husband was saying, you know, I have always thought maybe I could go into mission work myself, and, and my wife and I have talked about this, but you know, we weren't sure if we were qualified enough. So even that discussion about supporting us surfaced things in their lives that are meeting needs in their lives. That's why I'm never embarrassed to ask for support, because it's not about what I get. It's about what's happening in the life of the giver. And that's why Paul had no problem at all receiving more than he needed. He was at, what, 120% of his target or whatever it was, because he just knew these folk need to give. They need to give. Philippi was part of the Macedonian group of churches, and Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, said about them in another context of giving, he said that they gave out of extreme poverty. We're not talking here of a wealthy church. We're talking of a church here that was struggling economically, yet chose to give a significant gift to a missionary, send someone a whole month walking there to spend some time with them and walk all the way back again when they could have just as easily said, well, let's just pray for Paul, dear man, he's in prison. So, how can you help supporters see that being involved in mission as a supporter meets their needs? Communicate within your churches not about the needs of the missionary necessarily, but the needs of us as a sending community to be involved. I mean, we, we often joke in, in, in our church, because we have missionaries all over the place, that, you know, the services, our, sun, our Sunday morning services last about three days because they're in all sorts of different places because we're people all over the place. And we have to think like that rather than, oh, there's so-and-so over there. Or, oh, yeah, I forgot about them. 
somehow we have to have that whole package that Paul felt was appropriate. So, I'm going to throw you to discuss these things later on. How can we encourage support our missionary partnership? How can we encourage effective prayer? How can we encourage emotional connection with the missionary? How can we encourage visits to missionaries? How can we encourage genuine concern for the financial well-being of missionaries? How can we communicate that the supporters' account gets credited and the supporters' needs get met? So what does it mean to support a missionary? There's one thing we're sure of. It takes a lot more than money. Money is the easy bit. It's the rest of it is a challenge to us. This was built as a workshop. I didn't come up with that term. Somebody else, I think he just kind of chose a term. Seminar, I just called it a workshop. So I'm going to make you work. Uh, round your tables, talk about these issues. Bring your experiences in, your questions. Recognizing there's a lot of difference uh, in different uh, perspectives here. And I will close our prayer time about half past, if that's okay. That gives you maybe 10 or 12 minutes. I'll give you 15 minutes. Okay? Get talking. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.